Thank you very much, Lisa. And uh, I'd like to thank the Mershon Center for inviting me to come and spend the day with you here. It's been a great day to meet several of you in the audience and uh, get a chance to hear about your research. It's been a lot of fun for me. What I want to do today is talk, as Lisa said, about the relationship between security and economic policy. Now, the two paths that I could take, as the, as the saying goes, I could either restate the obvious or I could elucidate the uh, obscure. And my goal today, you'll be, you'll be uh, happy to hear, is to restate the obvious. Um, in fact, I can tell you right off the bat what I'm going to say. I'm going to make two main points. I'm going to say the economic factors are very important for security and can even be more important than military affairs in some cases. And second, I'm going to say that good economic policies can make America safer. It's pretty simple. That's what, I, that's what I'd like to do today. Now, I have to just say, uh, you know, a number of people, there's a very complicated relationship between economics and security. A lot of great philosophers and political thinkers have tried to, uh, to figure out how these things are related. Now, Mao Zedong is one of my favorite political philosophers. And... Um, one of his great quotes was he said that in order to get rid of the gun, you have to use the gun, and political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. That sounded kind of militaristic to me. But Mao also said that in dealing with, with imperialist people, you had to coexist peacefully. You had to do business with them. You had to transact business with them. And it was very important to get along in peaceful manner with your, with your other countries. So it sounded to me like he understood the economics uh, angle there, too. So I guess what it really boils down to is my favorite all-time Mao quote, which is, there are good things and bad things and bad things and good things. It's a very useful quote, <laughs> and you can use it in almost any situation. Now, let me uh, just start by giving you my vantage point for talking about security and economics. And as, 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 um, as Lisa said, it was the, my, my time at the National Economic Council now, um, as you probably know, the National Economic Council was a creation of President Clinton in 1993 when he came into, into office. The president realized that there, were very, that there were very strong interlinkages between economics and security, and he understood that the Cold War was over and that the world was different. And so you couldn't just look at the world through the eyes of the National Security Council and think about things purely in security terms. So he created this new structure. Bob Rubin was the first head of the National Economic Council. And let me just give you an example, a concrete example, to sort of get us started here. Imagine you're writing a memo to the president. The new prime minister of Japan is paying a visit, and your job is going to be to brief the president on what he should be saying. And, um, <laughs> by the way, this is where the rubber meets the road. When you're, when you're a presidential advisor, where the rubber meets the road is when you're writing that briefing memo to the president. Tell him what is going to happen at this meeting. Now, there are, it, it, maybe some of you have worked on National Security Council staff, but we usually have a scene setter. That's a document that describes, you know, what's going on, this leader, where is he coming from, did he just get reelected, you know, two months ago with 60% popularity or whatever, has he had a major crisis, has there been an earthquake in his country, just sort of sets the scene of what's going on. So that's the first thing that's usually in the packet that the president would get. The second thing is a policy issues paper or objectives paper, and that would be where you kind of spell out what the policies are, what you want to do. The really important thing in any presidential briefing packet is the talking points. And usually there are about two pages of talking points. Now this 
if it's a really long meeting, we, we actually would also do a one-page abstract of talking points. So the president would just get one page, a cheat sheet, and it might have you know six bullet points on it. That's what the president would like. Whatever you do, don't forget to say these six things. Now, it's the talking points that everyone argues about. That's where it would be haggling. You might haggle for hours. Can we include this talking point for the president or not? But that's, uh, that's what the president would get. Before there was an NEC, before there was a National Economic Council, what would the president see? Well, I, I got a pretty good idea because I could see often the National Security Council would take the first cut at drafts of these kind of documents, and you could see what would naturally come to the mind of National Security Council staff and what, if we were having a meeting with the president, what they would say. Somewhere in the middle of those two pages of talking points, uh, I have seen with my own eyes statements like, um, uh, Mr. Pri uh, Mr. Prime Minister, we're very concerned about the uh, incinerator height at our military base in Japan, and we know that this is creating a smog problem for some of the local neighbors, and we're working on engineering a 40-foot extension to the tower, and uh, you'll be assured of that. Also, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, we are looking at a new access road for one of our other military bases in your country, and uh, you'll be happy to know that this will be less dis disruptive to the traffic in your neighborhood. And so that, that, that would be, those would be points that would be somewhere on the second page of a, of a set of talking points that the president would, would have. Okay, now the NEC rides to the rescue. That's the way I would, would put this. NEC comes in and would note, well, you know, the macroeconomic situation in Japan has been really bad. And in fact, you don't have quite the right policies in place. You have very inadequate policies to promote growth. Uh, in fact, we have a, whatever, $200 billion trade relationship with Japan, and we're very concerned about non-tariff barriers that are blocking U.S. companies. Or we're very concerned that some U.S. high-tech companies aren't even being allowed to bid on, uh, let's say, the next generation of cell phones service, cell phone system in Japan. And we really think you need to allow Motorola or whatever U.S. companies to bid on this project. Maybe these developments affect 10% of all U.S. jobs in fact, they probably do represent 5 or 10% of all U.S. jobs. And that was where the NEC would come in. We viewed that as our role. Our job was to identify some of these other factors of what the U.S. should be saying to Japan, not just military and security issues. I can say we used to haggle over these points. The National Security Council and the National Economic Council used to haggle over these points. It was really very healthy. And I think very often when we would identify some of these other points, it was a very easy sell to Sandy Berger and the National Security Council to say, oh yes, we understand that's a very good thing we should have in there. I have to say, Bill Clinton was a very uh, energetic, uh, a very energetic student of economic policy issues. He loved these things. He would love to debate these issues with foreign leaders. And so it was a very rewarding experience to help prepare him for any one of these, these visits. Well, I said that we would talk today about two main things how economics affects security, and then what would be some good policies. So let's start talking about what these economic factors might be. The very first thing I think is, is so obvious that uh, I'm sure everyone here knows what it is, but if you want to be secure, you want to have good security, you need to have a strong economy. Why? Well, a strong economy gives you the wherewithal to buy the things you need to, to pay for to have good security. A strong economy feeds your technology base. A strong economy feeds your, your employment base. A strong economy gives you soft power, or cultural power even. And we know that that's, that's very true. Listen, we all know that defense is expensive. 
During the Cold War, we were putting 6 to 9% of GDP every year into defense. That's very expensive. The Soviet Union, we now know, is putting 25 to 35% of its GDP into, into military spending. At the end of the day, we eventually broke their back. They just couldn't afford to spend that much money on military spending. Today, the U.S. spends on the order of $400 billion on military spending. This is more than the whole rest of the world combined on military spending. And we also know that security spending is, is expensive. Israel is an example of a country that has been dealing with a lot of uh, uh, terrorism and so on. Israel spends somewhere between 16 or somewhere between 12 and 16 percent of GDP on military and security spending. That's an estimate from the uh, Bank of Israel. Well, what's the problem with, with spending? What do you, you know, why do we worry about it? Well, security spending for the most part is what economists call a deadweight loss to the economy. When the TSA guard sits watching a corridor at an airport for eight hours and just makes sure no one goes down the corridor all day, he hasn't really produced anything other than, quote, security services. What this does, this adds to the cost of the airplane ticket or whatever, but it doesn't really produce anything that people wanted to buy before there was a security threat or a terrorist threat. So basically, this is uh, a deadweight loss to the economy. The U.S. is going to have to set aside 2%, 3%, 4%, 5% of all of its workers for security, just that, that's where we're heading right now. And so think about that. You have, you have to have an economy that can take 3, 4, 5% of, of all its workers and put them in some activity that isn't generating a, 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 a service or a good um, that people want to buy except for security threat. Now this uh, is actually not so easy. You know, some countries, we, we asked some countries to put air marshals on airplanes. You remember that debate of a, of a couple of months, uh, a couple of weeks ago at Christmas time? And people said, well, some countries can't even afford air, mar air, air marshals. That's not a joke. This is expensive. We're talking about taking a, a direct subtraction out of the productive resources of the economy and putting it into an activity that you didn't think you needed two years ago. Now, um, let me just talk for a minute about soft power issues, because I think that's of, of interest to some of you. You know, I used to represent the U.S. government in international meetings in the early 1990s at the OECD and places like that. And, you know, the Europeans and the Japanese were always lecturing me, you know, you Americans don't save enough. You Americans, <laughs> you know, you're too consumer-oriented. And that was just the way international meetings went in the early 1990s. You know, by 1999 and 2000, it was a complete reversal. You, know, you would go to international meetings with the Europeans, with Japanese. The U.S. at that time had had 4.5% GDP growth for half a decade. We had strong investment spending. We had low inflation. Uh, we had a very strong dollar. And it was amazing how that changed the whole tone of international meetings. This was soft power. It was very clear to me. When we weighed in at the National Economic Council, when we weighed in in, say, setting up the agenda for the G7 summits, those sorts of things, it was like pushing on an open door. When, by, by the year 1999-2000, if the United States said we'd like a certain thing to be on the agenda, the, the Japanese who hosted the Okinawa summit in 2000, the Germans in 1999 in Cologne, it, we basically had a 90% American agenda at those meetings. And that was, what, that was part of the benefit of soft power. You, you had a strong economy and you, had, uh, you exuded confidence and it was, that was, you, got your, you got your say in terms of international economic agenda. That's the way the world went. I was with President Clinton the first time he met 
Prime Minister Putin. Uh, Putin was just named Prime Minister at the end of August, 99, and we had an APEC meeting about a week later in Auckland. And we had a private meeting uh, with the President and with Prime Minister Putin. And it was very interesting. Putin sat there very stiff and erect. But he, he asked all kinds of questions about the U.S. economy. He wanted to know how did we create jobs? How did we have investments made? How did we generate growth? And it was very clear to me that uh, the, the power dynamic in that room of a meeting of uh, Russian Prime Minister Putin and Clinton if you have an economy that's growing strong, you have the power, and it was just—it was just an impression that was unmistakable in my mind that Putin knew that he was talking to someone who came from a lot of power because of economic power. Now, um, let me just give a couple of other examples on how economic linkages can give a common agenda and can lead to security strength. And the first one I want to give is, is China. Um, throughout 1999 and 2000, you know, we had intense discussions at the White House about the role of China. We, we had the debate of whether China was a strategic trade partner, was it a, you know, was it a competitor. There were a whole host of questions we dealt with. How would we handle technology transfer? Should we have export controls to China? How would we handle intellectual property rights? What about job migration? What about human rights issues? Those were all the issues that we were debating in the year 1999. At the end of the day, we came to, I think, the only conclusion you could come to, which was China was for real. China was not going away. China was a fact on the ground. And we had to, we had to make sure that our policy optimized our position, given that China was, was here to stay. We did a lot of homework looking at how China had behaved in international organizations. I checked out how China had behaved at the World Bank, at the International Monetary Fund. Did it honor its commitments, its behavior at the United Nations? These were all some of the things that we looked at. China basically had a pretty good record in international agencies, international um, groups like this. And that was one of the factors that, that went into the decision to go ahead and negotiate with China to bring them into the WTO. Now, this decision has not been without any pain or any adjustments, but I think it was a very good decision. And let me just uh, give you a couple of pieces of, of evidence. Since the day that China joined the WTO, U.S. exports to China are up 66%. Since the day China joined the WTO, U.S. exports to the rest of the world are minus 10%. I just give that as an example. The, day, the, the year before China joined the WTO, its import to GDP ratio was 15%. Today, it's 32%. They've doubled their import share of the economy. Just to put that 32% in context, Japan today is about 8% import to GDP ratio. So, I mean, I think clearly, uh, clearly China has opened up and is, is serving as a, uh, a destination for U.S. exports. The interesting thing to me is we had this meltdown over Iraq with the Europeans. We know about that. But actually, relations with China have been pretty darn good in the last year over this whole Iraq thing. I think this is due in no small part to the U.S. decision to bring China into the WTO and to, and to say that we're going to treat them on an uh, equal basis as a, as a member of the world community. My other example, let me go back to Russia again, this time in 2000. And this time it's President Putin rather than Prime Minister Putin. He'd been elected by that time. <laughs> Russia has, was still suffering the effects 
of the Russian financial crisis. The ruble was still low, oil prices were low, Russian economy was in, it was in bad shape, Russia had defaulted on GKOs, their government bonds, and we knew we were getting ready to go to Moscow for a state visit, and we knew that President Putin was going to hit us for debt forgiveness. Now, uh, by the way, debt forgiveness is something, if you're, in, if you're in a treasury anywhere in the world, you don't like debt forgiveness. And the U.S. Treasury was true to form, saying we shouldn't do that. I remember one evening we had a meeting with the president. It was scheduled for half an hour. And it started running late, and it was supposed to start at 6.30, and it didn't. And then it was supposed to start at 7, and it was running late. And I'd been there long enough to know that when, when this starts happening, usually you get a phone call about 7.30 that says, the whole thing's off, you, you know, go home tonight, it's, it's just not going to happen. But the meeting started at 7.30 at night. We thought we were going to have a half-hour meeting. President Clinton spent more than two hours asking a group of five of us advisors about Russia's debt situation. He was fascinated by it. He wanted to know all it was. What was the burden on Putin's budget? What was the, what was the spending for? What was, he wanted to know all about it. Clinton realized you can't get blood from a stone. And he, he, he knew that. Anyway, we get to Moscow. Putin did exactly what we thought. He hit us very hard for debt forgiveness. The president was very sympathetic. He said that he would go to the G7. He would investigate whether we might do debt forgiveness. We would especially approach Schroeder because Germany owned by far the biggest part of Russian debt. Now, at the end of the day, oil prices picked up, the ruble strengthened, and Russia actually was able to climb out without debt forgiveness. We know that. I don't think that's what's important here. What was important was Putin realized that the West had a policy of engagement, it wanted to help, it understood that uh, basically the West was committing that it was going to be a player in the world and it was going to um, basically try to help in this situation. Again, you look back at, at, at the Iraq situation, we didn't, Russia didn't vote for us at the United Nations, but in many other ways Russia has been very supportive, one of our least problematic allies in the last nine months. And I think, that, again, not do uh, completely to just one event like this, but certainly part of the structure, part of the fabric of U.S.-Russian relations that have been positive for the United States, I think. Now, um, let me now just go on to one other economic factor, and that is something that I think some of the people here deal with quite a bit, and that is global poverty. That is the factor that affects U.S. security. In a nutshell, I think there's a linkage between abject poverty and high unemployment and some of the rise of terrorism that we're seeing. Now, I'm not claiming a one-for-one -one relationship. That would be way too simplistic. But I think there are some connections, some strands. I don't know, how many of you have read Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations? Well, I recommend that book for those of you who haven't read it. It's, uh, uh, I, I think it's a very thought-provoking book. Basically, in a nutshell, he says that there's a demographic explosion in the Muslim world, and for the next 50 years, there's going to be a clash between Islam and Christianity. That's in a nutshell. Uh, the book is too mechanical for my taste. I actually think that it's a much more complicated uh, situation here, and I think there are strong economic footprints. We all know the global poverty kind of statistics. You know, a quarter of the world lives on less than a dollar a day of income. Uh, a billion people a day go to bed without hungry. Uh, a billion people can't read a word in any language. We know these kind of statistics. If you look at where the terrorists hang out, where the trouble spots are, where they are blowing up most of their bombs, we're talking about areas that for the most part have very high poverty rates and very high unemployment rates. Afghanistan, 
Pakistan have per capita income levels of only a few hundred dollars a year. They have high poverty rates. Uh, other trouble spots, Indonesia, the Philippines, also have very high poverty rates, very low rates of uh, per capita income growth. Saudi Arabia, you say, well, Saudi Arabia is doing all right, aren't they? But the answer is Saudi Arabia is not doing very well. The uh, Saudi Arabia in the last half decade has had negative per capita income growth every year. So we have a bad economy going on in, South, in Saudi Arabia right now. The unemployment rate in Saudi Arabia is a, is a very political, it's a political hot potato, and no one can really say what it is. But the CIA handbook says that the unemployment rate in Saudi Arabia is 25%. And the, un, the youth unemployment rate is probably 50% in Saudi Arabia. You know, it's not a coincidence to me that with a 50% unemployment rate and with negative economic growth, you know, this is a more attractive environment. This is more of a breeding ground for terrorists than it would be if we had economic growth. Now, um, so we talked about um, having needing a strong economy. We talked about how economics can, can set up a, a fabric for relations with other countries. And we talked about some of the problems of global poverty. The last area that I see between uh, economics and how it affects American security are potential vulnerabilities. Now, um, the first one is our dependence for foreign capital. Right now, uh, let's say the students who are in the room, I don't know if uh, there are a couple of students here. You know, when you were born, the U.S. got about 3% of its capital from overseas. That is, its uh, uh, holdings of, of U.S. government uh, debt. About 3% were hold, held by foreigners. Today, it's about 20%. So we are very dependent on foreigners for uh, lending us money to finance the budget deficit, for example. So far, the system's worked pretty well. We haven't had a crisis. We haven't had any run on the, uh, on the, on the U.S. financial markets. But I do think we have some very big adjustments coming. Think about this. We need to import $2 billion of capital every day, foreign capital, to cover our, uh, our, our, our current account deficit. You remember 10 to 15 years ago, Japan was buying Pebble Beach Golf Course and Rockefeller Center? China is going to be doing the, that, those same sorts of things over the next three, five, seven, ten years. It's, that's going to happen. That's part of our legacy of our big budget deficits and our big current account deficit and our dependence on foreign capital. We just have to sort of recognize that that's going to happen. <laughs> the other thing is, is that we are at risk for a sudden collapse of foreign interest in our, in our assets. I don't know, did any of you see Bob Rubin's um, op-ed piece in the New York Times about two weeks ago. He, uh, he gave a paper at the American Economic Association meetings in San Diego uh, two weeks ago. And he argued that there was a risk that because uh, we have such big budget deficits, foreigners may lose interest in the U.S. and could pull their money out. And that that could lead to, let's say, a 50% reduction in the U.S. stock market. I don't think that this is, this isn't my baseline case or this isn't sort of a 50-50 thing, but certainly in my mind it's one chance in five that something like this could happen. And serious people like Bob Rubin are worried about that. So we have to think about that. I mean, we are down 25% of the euro in the past year, although it's up 3% in the last few days. But I think there is some risk that we could have this sort of financial meltdown. So that's one vulnerability. A second vulnerability is what I call confidence effects. Now think about this, and uh, what kind of a society would be 
could suffer the most from terrorism. Just think about that for a minute. This is a study that we did last year. We, I put together a little team of people, a couple of science and technology people and a couple of uh, security people. We, we had a project looking at uh, the vulnerability of the U.S. economy to terrorism, and, and we, it, it gave us a good chance to think about some of these issues. If you had a very rural society where everyone was a farmer and there was a terrorist attack over in that cornfield, it wouldn't make much difference probably. The thing that makes the U.S. vulnerable, the thing, one of the aspects of our vulnerability is our high level of income. We have, a, we have per capita income of $35,000, $36,000 in this country. The rest of the G7 countries, including Japan, Germany, France, Italy, UK, are all about $26,000. It costs only about $20,000, $25,000 to live. You can buy, be very comfortable in food, shelter, clothing, and so on at $20,000 to $25,000. We have a discretionary income, the money that's left over after we pay for the things we need, of about a third of our income in the United States. It's not true in Europe and it's not true in Japan, but we have about one-third extra money that we can use for restaurant dinners, vacations to Disneyland, so on. This basically becomes part of America's vulnerability to terrorism. Things that, are, that we spend with discretionary money almost by definition are deferrable. If you get a little concerned about getting on an airplane, you could just say, I'm not going to go to Disneyland for my family vacation this year. We'll stay home. And you don't spend the money. About 25% of the U.S. economy is in travel and tourism. And this is, this is a whole sector of the economy, a whole quarter of the economy is at risk of terrorism or people ratcheting back or people getting scared, concerned. Another effect that we have and that we have to worry about in the U.S. that makes the U.S. more vulnerable than other countries is the financial connection. This chart here is, um, is put out by UBS, the, the, uh, the Swiss bank. UBS does a survey of investor optimism. And you can see we have a, a September 11 attack. Investor confidence plummeted at the time of, the investor, at, at the time of 9-11. If you look at the whole period when the, the administration was making the case for war in uh, September, uh, August, September, October, November, December 2003, we had a collapse of investor confidence. This, um, this measure in history had never been below uh, about 60. This is a 10-year series. This is a monthly series going back for 10 years. Yeah. This is this is this is U.S. This is U.S. investors, their, their confidence. And uh, this is investor confidence, not consumer confidence, although consumer confidence chart would look very similar to this. But I'm showing this chart because this is a very good precursor of where the stock market goes. This index fell to five on the eve of the invasion uh, of the Iraq war. It just shows you the, the rhetoric, the talk about war, the uh, concern. These factors all got, got plugged very quickly into the U.S into U.S. Stock, stock investors' minds and into the stock market. One of the reasons why we've had a jobless recovery, let's be very clear about this, and one of the reasons we haven't created jobs and is exactly because of these sorts of effects. There's not a mystery to, to me at all. These, this is a very powerful effect. U.S. economy has much greater uh, concentration of wealth per capita than the European countries, so we're more vulnerable on the discretionary income side. We're also more vulnerable on the financial connections. Things work quicker in the U.S., and, and things get translated into the stock market and stock market wealth much more quickly in the U.S. than other countries. 
A third vulnerability that we have is oil prices and energy. I think there is a bigger oil price effect than most people realize. <laughs> I think that $5 a barrel knocks half a point off U.S. growth. $10 a barrel knocks probably a point and a quarter off U.S. GDP growth in a year. This is based on the econometric modeling work that I've done over the last 20 years. This chart here uh, is a chart that I think is very, really interesting. It shows the average rate of growth in the OECD countries plotted against oil prices. And the, um, the red line is economic growth and the yellow line is oil prices. We've done one little thing here. We've done a phase shift of one year on oil prices because where oil prices go right now can slow the economy next year. But what you see is there have been very clear phases. When you have high or rising oil prices, we basically drive the industrial economy into the ground. And when we have stable or falling oil prices, the economy does very well. The, um, <coughs> the, uh, if we just had moderate oil prices, if we could just plug oil prices at, say, 18 to $22 a barrel, I think that the industrial countries could easily be on a, a pretty even keel of about 3% growth. And when we have these periods where we have rising oil prices, we basically knock industrial country growth down to 1%. I think there's more of a relationship here than people generally realize. Okay, let's now talk about what we should do about this. What can good economic policies do? Now, we're getting ready for the, uh, the Super Bowl here. So I think it's useful to think about offense and defense. Now, in Washington, we have this guy who's supposed to know something about offense. So happens he's newly available to serve others. Uh, his name is Steve Spurrier, and he has a fun-and-gun philosophy of offense. So let's talk about what a fun-and-gun uh, offense would be for the U.S. economy and for U.S. economic policy. I think the first thing that we would need to do on offense is to strengthen world growth. You know, Larry Summers, my former colleague, used to say that the, US, that the world economy was flying on one engine. And basically, he was right. For the last decade, we've been flying on one engine, basically the U.S., and we'll give China credit for being half an engine of growth, or three quarters now. In the last decade, Japan's averaged something like 0.7% annual growth. Europe's averaged something like one and a quarter percent average economic growth. The world has been in terrible shape. Our main allies, the main G7 countries, have had a dismal economic performance. I think the problem has been bad economic policies. I think we've had an irrational monetary policy in Europe. I think we've had inflexible labor market policies in Europe. We've had a Japanese government that's been unwilling to tackle banking reform. I mean, we know what the problems are. I think we need to think back to what the G7 was all about the first G7 summits back tw almost uh, 30 years ago in the mid-1970s. The G7 summits were designed to be a chance for the leaders to get together and talk about how each other's economies were doing, what they could do to strengthen the world economy, what their obligations were. And I think we've completely lost focus on that issue. I personally take some blame. The, the, the G7 summits drifted off into sort of a discussion of one sexy issue or two sexy issues, political leaders, it was very convenient for political leaders to get together for a summit and to talk about an initiative like Digital Divide or a, a, a health initiative in Africa or an education initiative, something like that. I'm not saying these things were not useful, 
but they really, they cause us to take our eye off the ball, which is delivering the goods to the people in terms of everyday economic performance. I think we've forgotten how important economic growth is as a tool. Let me, let me emphasize this to you. If the U.S. could get Europe and Japan to get back on the same kind of growth path in the, in the last 10 years that they've been on in the previous 10 years, I've done some calculations. I just want to share a couple of numbers with you. Um, if if uh, I looked at the current account balances of, of, of Japan from 82 to 93 and then 94 to 2003, and they did the same for Europe. If we just had the same... It, this, both countries have had bigger surpluses in the later period. They've had bigger surpluses because they've been running their macro economies too cool. They haven't been having aggressive enough growth. They haven't had the, uh, they haven't had the right policy mix. If we could get those countries to have just had the same growth and taking the sa making the same contribution to world demand in the last 10 years that they did in the previous 10 years, we would have something like $70 billion more of demand out there for U.S. exports. I've done just a quick multiplier of number of jobs per billion dollars using a standard rule of thumb. We would have created something on the order of 600, we would have about 600,000 more jobs every year if Europe and Japan were just growing at the rate that they had in the previous 10 years. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound like much. Well, President Bush is getting criticized for losing 2 million jobs or whatever since he took office. If just three years at 600,000, basically, if we'd had Europe and Japan pulling their weight in the world economy, we probably wouldn't have lost any jobs. Bush would probably not have any negative in terms of job growth. At least that would be the, that's the order of magnitude. That's one thing we need to do. Second, uh, <coughs> I'm very concerned about America's goodwill in the world and our ability to fight trade wars, and that's something we need to talk about for a minute. We've, I think most of you in this room know about the Pew survey that looks at attitudes that foreigners have toward the U.S. And I think we know that there's been a big decrease in approval or, or, uh, uh, of, of the United States. Most of the European countries in 2000, 2001, you know, had 70% approval of, US, of, the, of the U.S., had a favorable impression of the U.S. And lately that number has been like 20%. Spain, I was having a discussion, I guess uh, uh, we were talking about Spain. Spain dropped from 50% to 14% approval of U.S. policies. I'm worried about this. These are our best friends. These are basically our allies out there in the world. These are the people that we want to have trade relations with, that, we wanna, uh, that our companies want to sell to. And I'm worried about that. <laughs> you know, we have, Europe is on the verge of imposing $4 billion of punitive tariffs on the U.S. for the FISC issue. This is the Foreign Sales Corporation issue. Uh, they, you know, we've been, we give a tax subsidy to exporters and the WTO has ruled it's illegal and they've said that we only have a, a certain window to get rid of this, this thing. It's been ruled and appealed and so on to the WTO. We've lost every case. The Europeans are getting ready to impose $4 billion of trade sanctions. Some people call this the neutron bomb of trade relations. And I think it probably is. I, I mean, can you imagine what Congress is going to do if they hear the Europeans put $4 billion of tariffs on our goods? I'm worried about that. We can wind the clock back to 1930 to the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. This basically was about a 25% increase in U.S. tariffs at that time. By the way, um, uh, <laughs> there is a proposal in Congress right now to put a 27.5% tariff on Chinese goods. So it's about the same order of magnitude of what Smoot-Hawley was doing. 
within two years of when the Smoot-Hawley tariff passed, the volume of world trade had fallen by two-thirds. The unemployment rate on average, the day that Smoot-Hawley was passed, the unemployment rate in the industrial countries was about 4%. Two years later, after Smoot-Hawley had done its magic, we had about 22% average unemployment rate in the industrial countries. Now, I'm not saying that Smoot-Hawley is, you know, we're, we're exactly back there, but we're at more risk of this than I think some people realize. We may not have the most extreme outcome of Smoot-Hawley and retaliatory tariffs and retaliatory tariffs, but think about halfway solutions where we just sort of start blocking each other's, we, the U.S. and Europe, start blocking each other's mergers and acquisitions, or we put in place by domestic policies, or we say that for security reasons we can't have outsourcing of software contracts, and so on. That is what companies are worried about. This is what companies come to me and we talk about. Companies are worried that they're going to get discriminated against. European companies are going to try to, countries are going to cut them off. And I think there's a risk of this. The, uh, the, the one other thing we need to do is, is backfill on globalization. Now, I'm really worried. I, we are at risk. Globalization is really on a knife's edge right now, and we could be slipping backwards very easily. We could easily go back to the 1970s type policies that we had in Latin America, which were very disastrous for the Latin American economies. We need to have a serious dialogue with Brazil, with India, with um, Pakistan. I said that we had reached out to Russia and China. I gave those examples. We need to identify the critical countries today, and we need to have that same reaching out. It may be a Pakistan. It may be a Brazil. We need to bring these countries in, these big systemic countries. We need to bring them into the fold, and we need to sit down and listen to them. We have to certainly worry about things like agriculture subsidies. That worries these countries to death. They hate agriculture subsidies in the big industrial countries. I think we need to have a serious we need to have a serious talk with these countries, and we need to come back and we need to make some concessions, I think, if we want this whole globalization thing to go forward. One other um, thing we need to um, do is we need to talk about defensive policies. I talked about offensive policies, getting world growth up and so on. We also need to do, take some defensive policies. <laughs> now, we talked about uh, being dependent on foreign countries for capital. You know, when you have a subsistence problem, the first thing you need to do is stop digging. We have a $500 billion budget deficit, and we need to do something about it. Now, I like this little quote in Paul O'Neill's new book, where apparently he went to Vice President Cheney, and he said, you know, I'm really worried about big budget deficits. And, and Cheney apparently said, don't worry about it. We learned from President Reagan that we don't have to worry about budget deficits. Anyway, I, I don't find that terribly reassuring because I do worry about budget deficits. Uh, it's, to me, it's sort of like the, um, the Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson movie that uh, is, is out in the last few weeks called Something's Got to Give. Well, something's got to give with the budget uh, situation. Uh, Democrats and Republicans will say, well, we've got to raise, you know, we've got to, Democrats will say we've got to raise taxes. Republicans say we've got to cut spending. The truth is we've probably got to do some of both. And I, I leave that to others to talk about how that's going to get done. But I think a train wreck is coming. It's not coming in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months. But yeah, two years, three years, four years, we do have a train wreck coming. And it's not going to be pretty. One other thing we need to do is we need to use the international financial institutions more rationally. Now, President Clinton, he had a very 
very good idea of what the international financial institutions do. I'm talking about the World Bank and the IMF, for example. He had a very good idea of, of how these uh, agencies could be used to promote American security and America's uh, agenda. And one way, of course, was the bailouts. We had the bailouts in the late 1990s of Mexico, 95. We had the Thai bailout, the Korean bailout, and so on. <laughs> you know, quietly, behind the scenes, these countries have worked, things have worked out. These countries have paid back their debts. Mexico paid back debt with interest, paid back three years earlier, whatever it was. Basically, financial crises have been averted because of these institutions. The truth is, this is the best bargain America has. We pay 17% of the IMF's budget, and for 17%, we're the only country in the world that gets a veto over every IMF decision. The bylaws of the IMF say, that countries that have 15% or more of the, of the quota of the voting rights get to have a veto power, and no one else does. Well, guess what? We're 17%, and no one else has a veto power. For 17 cents on the dollar, we get to call the shots in the international financial system. It's a great bargain. The new administration, the, the Bush administration came in um, with a lot of rhetoric against the IFE. They wanted to shut them down and so on. I think they've learned that 17 cents on the dollar is a pretty good bargain. And we are actually seeing them using these institutions in a more rational way. You know, the world, these organizations basically do a pretty good job. They help with infrastructure. They provide training, technical skills, institution building. They do a lot of education programs. They basically, I think, do a very good job in the world. They're not perfect. And I think the IMF is too rigid and strict in its requirements. I think it ought to have more pro-growth in its agenda. But anyway, we can live with that. Uh, we have to do more to increase confidence. I said that we have these confidence effects and these confidence risks. I think we need to have more public spending for infrastructure. You know, if you're a railroad and you have a bridge, a railroad bridge, and someone's worried that a terrorist might blow it up, I don't know why you should have to be the one, a private company, spending your money to send a guard out there to watch to make sure no one blows up your bridge. I think this is a public, this is like a public threat. And I, I would argue for more public infrastructure spending, more use of, um, uh, of public funds, because I think we could call these public goods. And those bridges that don't blow up is a public good. One other thing, and I'm going to end with this, is the energy situation. I think we need a more rational energy policy, both in the short run and in the long run. Now, I demonstrated with this chart here that high oil prices can be bad for the economy and bad for our security. In the short run, I think we have to be more aware of the connections between our rhetoric and things that actually hurt us. When we, when we rattle sabers and when we talk about going after this country or that country and we drive the world oil price up 5 or $10 a barrel, we're actually chopping a half a percent, a percentage point out of our own economic growth. These are the sorts of things that when I was at the National Economic Council, we would tell the president about. We, we looked at these are, I think this is what the NEC should be doing, is looking at these relationships between things like energy prices, rhetoric, foreign policy, and your overall economic health. One other thing we need is a more, we need a more rational policy toward the strategic petroleum reserve. Now we have what, 700, 700 million barrels I think in the spro right now, something on that order. To me, when oil is $35 a barrel, to be filling it at full speed is not sensible. Now, Phil Verliger is a, one of the best energy economists in the United States. He's a friend of mine. He's just recently estimated that if we, because we're filling the spro right now at full speed, he estimates 
that we have added up $10 a barrel for oil prices. That may seem a little bit high, and it may be a little bit high, but, but we're only adding this is like 3% to demand. But you know, these are nonlinear markets. When you add 3% at the wrong time, when, when supplies are very tight, you can get a very uh, strong price effect. And that's one of the things that I think we're seeing. That's, anyway, I, Bill Richardson, when he was energy secretary, we had an NEC process in uh, late 2000. We did a swap. Legally, you can do a swap. You can't sell oil out of the square, but you can do a swap. And we did a swap where you say, I'll give you one barrel of oil today, and you contract to give me 1.3 barrels you know, 18 months from now, something like that. I think that we should be much more creative using the SPRO. I think that we're exacerbating a problem to be trying to fill it right now when exactly when the prices are at a 40-year you know, high. That's one thing. Second is I think we need to think a little bit about the longer-term energy issues. Now, there's a bipartisan group, and I, I would encourage everyone to, who's interested in this at all to go to a website. There's a, there's a bipartisan group called the uh, National, or, sorry, the Energy Future Coalition. This is a bipartisan group in Washington that has come up with a very sensible set of recommendations on energy policy. This is not Greenpeace. This is General Motors, and it's Bechtel, and it's Duke Power, and it is... Um, Exxon and so on. I mean, this is this is the established energy system and, and the, the big players. I think their proposals are very balanced, reasonable, and fair, and I think that they're not terribly painful. One of the things that they call for is a one-third reduction in oil usage between now and 2025. And they recommend things like tightening CAFE standards, the, the, the auto fleet standards. They call for incentives to promote hybrid vehicles both purchasers and to uh, uh, car producers. They call for a major effort to uh, push fuel cell technology. You know, they, they, and this is what's fascinating. Some of these proposals they talk about are $1 billion or $2 billion, you know, $1 billion of tax, of tax benefits. One of the uh, uh, proposals is maybe up to $10 billion for a massive fuel cell uh, campaign. You know, people have said fuel cells can never be spread in the United States because it would cost $80 billion for the infrastructure alone to convert the, you know, gas stations that pump gas now would have to convert them to pumping uh, uh, hydrogen or whatever for fuel cells. It could never happen because it's $80 billion. Well, I think the Iraq war has changed that. I think it's changing that calculation. Uh, it's changing our definition of what's expensive and what's affordable. Now, I don't want to get into whether you think Iraq was fought for oil, weapons of mass destruction, Saddam, or bad guys, or whatever else. But we know one thing. We know that Iraq is costing American taxpayers about $160, $170 billion in an 18-month period. We know that it may end up costing $300, $500 billion of real money. I think many people would say, well, if Iraq wasn't really for oil, some portion of it might have been to, to make secure lines of... of um, of oil supply in the Middle East for the United States. Suddenly, suppose you just said a quarter of the Iraq budget was for, was for oil. I think that changed the calculations greatly. Suddenly, a quarter of 160, that's $40 billion. Suddenly, a billion dollars of tax subsidies or you know, research effort for fuel fuels, these things look like peanuts compared to the cost. Anyway, I think you're going to see some big developments in energy in the next three to five years. I'm going to stop here and, and we'll have some questions. Let me just sum up. Uh, economic factors, I think, are critical for upgrading our security. I think the base of security is a strong economy, and I think that's what we need. 
I think we're safer. I think, I think we have more security if we have friends in this world, if we have goodwill, if we have shared economic interests, shared economic and financial linkages. And I think we need to play both offense and defense in terms of policies. Now, on offense, we need to promote faster economic growth in the world. And on defense, we need to reduce these vulnerabilities. I think we need to worry about budget deficits, and I think we need to worry about energy risks. Let me stop there and let's have some questions.